this guy this morning. Give us ears to hear what you're saying. And Father, we ask that you will bless him as he blesses us, I pray. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thanks, Nigel. Morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Good to be together as church family. Looking forward to Wednesday, church family meeting. Just good to be together. It's an opportunity for us to talk a bit more about church family life in more depth than we would be able to on a Sunday morning. We're going to talk a bit about deacons um, and appointing them in the future. We're going to talk a bit about engaging with other local churches. Uh, we're going to, Nigel's going to give a bit more of an update on uh, the hive as well. So it promises to be a good evening for us to get together, get excited about what God's doing amongst us and pray into all that uh, God is doing with us. We're in Matthew chapter 4. If you want to turn there, if you've got a, a Bible, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Don't worry if you haven't, it's going to come up on the screen as well. Uh, we're doing a series in uh, Matthew um, looking at prepare the way, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus in our lives. We've looked at what the bapti- we're looking really at what the baptismal life looks like. What does it mean to be baptized into Jesus and then live life uh, following him? We've looked at the foundational uh, baptismal repentance. We've looked at receiving baptismal gifts of open heaven, Father's love, the Spirit given. And uh, at the moment we're in looking at resisting temptation because that's part of being baptized into Christ and living life is that Jesus gets baptized and then the first thing that happens is he goes through this season of testing. He goes through a period of, res- of temptation and uh, resisting the devil. And inevitably, uh, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you'll know that it can be a test at times, can't it? And it's a, a life of learning to resist the devil. Um, and I talked a bit about who the devil was last week. I talked a bit about how Jesus' story is our story. So there's a lot of background there that's maybe worth catching up on to make a little bit of a sense of some of the things that I'm talking about uh, this morning. And uh, it was really helpful hearing so many contributions this morning. It's great hearing God together. Uh, lots of the things that were shared fitting in with some of the themes that we're looking at this morning in the passage. Uh, so let's have a read. We're in Matthew 4, 8 to 11. It says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. When he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I was telling us uh, last week that um, me and my son, Seb, uh, play computer games together. I'm introducing him to the world of Mario Land on the SNES, Super Nintendo, if you remember one of those. Um, Saved me having to buy a Switch um, and holding him off for probably about, you know, however long. (laughs) Hopefully as long as possible, maybe forever, uh, if prayers are answered. Um, and the, the thing with pr- video games is, is they're predictable, aren't they? They're predictable. You know what's coming up. And naturally, as a six-year-old, he wouldn't ordinarily be very good at computer games, but he's actually getting quite good at Mario Land, because I sit be- beside him, and I tell him what's coming up. And I said, Seb, you're going to need to jump in a minute. There's this creature coming. And he jumps, and he's on to the next bit. Seb, you're going to need to like, time this just now. We time it together. And I'm beside him, coaching him his way through Mario Land. 
And that's how we resist temptation. Jesus has walked through temptation already, resisted the enemy, resisted the devil. And he sits beside us in life, the spirit with us, helping us. Because the devil's predictable. I talked last week about the devil's predictable goal, his predictable method, his predictable promises, his predictable timing. And today I'm going to talk about Jesus' goal, Jesus' method, the Father's promise and God's timing. Because the Lord Jesus is the man. He's, he's, he's humankind going through temptation, but resisting temptation all the way and overcoming the devil on our behalf so that he can sit beside us as we predict, as he predicts what the enemy's coming with, because he's predictable. And he helps us to resist the temptations that we face. That's what it says in, in Hebrews. It says, for he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted. And so he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to sit beside us. It says later on in Hebrews, since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's the son of God, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands what it means to be tempted because he's been through it himself, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, it says, yet is without sin. I, uh, Jesus knows what temptation is like to the max. As human beings who fa- uh, failed and flawed, who give in to temptation from time, we actually don't know and will never experience what temptation is like to the max. Because at some level we always give in. Jesus is the only one who has resisted temptation to the full. And therefore he really knows how hard temptation can be. And yet he's the only one who's resisted it without sin. And then it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Like Rachel was prophesying earlier, Jesus is in front of us. We can be in chains having given in to temptation and Jesus is in front of us having walked through it fully himself, calling us out, teaching us, sitting beside us through the video game, the predictable tactics of the enemy, just calling us forward out of the chains and saying they don't need to hold you any longer. So let's get into it. Here's the, the first thing. The devil's goal is always, I was, like I was saying last week, to reverse the order of things. He's always trying to get us to place ourselves above the Father. He's always trying to get us to swap the, the God and us dynamic, that we're his servants, we're here to serve and love and worship and honour him. And the enemy is always trying to get us to flip things, to make us the Lord of our lives, to make us God of our lives, to put us and ourselves in first place, as it were, and swap places with him. And so Jesus' goal is always to resist that. Um, it's to serve God only. It says, um, the devil says to Jesus, he says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world now and all their glory. You can have them now. I'll give them to you if you do it your own way. Don't worry about his plans and purposes, the way he's got it planned, the Father. Just do it your own way. You could have it now. Shortcut his plans. It's yours anyway. The Father's promised it to you. It's your right. In fact, this is why you came. Because John 3.16 tells us, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not really die, but have eternal life. This is the reason that Jesus has come for. He's come for the nations. He's come for the kingdoms of the world. He's come to love God's world. And the enemy's tempting him with something that the Father has promised him. Going, here, you just have it now. Shortcut things. It's in your own control. It's in your own hands. 
he's doing what's quite a common sales technique. I don't know if any of you have ever worked in sales. I uh, haven't worked in sales. Oh, I, I did very temporarily, although I didn't learn this technique. I did a fundraising job. You know those people who come to your door? They knock on your door. They have a little kind of speech that they tell you. Hey, here, good to see you. Me and some of my friends, they'll show you their lanyard. They're in your street today, and we're just asking some of you and your neighbors if you'll give in to this cause. And then they say, big build-up. Here's how horrendous this issue is that I'm encouraging you to give into. Big build-up. This is the number of people who are starving. This is the number of people who are having to deal with this issue or that issue. And it's big stuff. Just wondering if you'd just be able to give a couple of quid a month. Small ask. Yeah? And the devil's doing the same thing here. Kingdoms of the world and their glory. Big build-up. Small ask. You just bow down and worship to me. Just one momentary act of worship. Just reverse the order just for one moment. Big build up, small ask. He's tempting Jesus with the same goal that the Father has given Jesus, the same purpose, that Jesus would have loving reign and rule over the nations of the earth, that he'd bring his loving justice, that he would bring right living, endless joy, perfect peace, just for one small momentary act of worship. But this purpose of Jesus is to come for the kingdoms of the world and their glory, to love God's world and bring justice and righteousness, peace and joy, is subject to a greater goal and purpose. Jesus' foundational goal in life, what he's really aiming for, it's subject to this higher, greater goal. And he says it in verse 10. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We've been singing it this morning, haven't we? You alone deserve the glory. That's Jesus' foundational goal in his life, is to worship God, is to serve him, is to love the Father. In fact, later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 22, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are gathered around Jesus, trying to corner him, and they're questioning him. And one of the lawyers asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law and he says to them you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind it's the greatest commandment this is Jesus's goal in life the Westminster Catechism if you're familiar with that it's like a Q&A document that helps teach the foundations of the Christian faith it's a great read it's a really good way of teaching yourself the basics of Christianity and the first question in the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What's the, the chief purpose, the, the kind of highest goal of human life? And the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's humanity's chief goal. It's Jesus' goal. It's to enjoy God forever. It's to glorify him And so Jesus, humanity's chief end, is to glorify the Father. In fact, this has been Jesus' goal from eternity past, to worship and glorify, to honour the Father. You think about the the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays in um, John 17. How he starts it, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, me. Why? So that the Son may glorify you. 
since you've given him authority over all flesh, over all kingdoms of the world and their glory. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I.e., what Jesus and the, Jesus the Son, or the Son of God, and the Father have been doing from eternity past is glorifying and honouring and loving, serving, worshipping one another, living for the other. God at his centre is about the other, because it's in his very nature. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father. That's the dynamic of their relationship, one another. And Jesus carries on in, in Matthew 22 to state it really plainly. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment. It's the first thing in life. And then he says, the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, loving the world, the kingdoms of the world and their glory, is a good purpose, isn't it? It's, it's, the Bible says it's why Jesus came. It's what he came for. But it's second to a ruling goal and purpose and aim in life, which is to worship God only. And the devil is trying to lead Jesus higher in this passage. I talked a bit about this last week. He's, taken him to, he's in the wilderness tempting him, and then he takes him to a temple pinnacle, and now he takes him to a very high mountain to see the glory of the nations. But the Spirit leads Jesus lower. He's born by the Spirit as a human. He goes down into John's baptism with identifying with sinners. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's going to go on to die a death of a criminal, even death on a cross, and die. Why? Why does that passage in Philippians say that? So that he will be exalted. And that's the way, that's the way of God. The way up is down. It's, the gospel, it's a gospel paradox. The way up is down. Jesus says it lots of times, doesn't he? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever saves his life for his sake will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The way up is down. Down into baptism, but up into God's gifts of Father's love, open heavens, spirit given. Down into the wilderness, but up into angelic help at the end of the passage. The devil is all about the impressive, the fascinatingly great. He's about exaltation. He's about, oh, look at this glory. This could all be yours. Devilishly fascinating and great and impressive. The spirit is about, the spirit of Jesus is about the mundane often. It's about the low. It's heading towards the cross and suffering. And at the end, Jesus will dismiss Satan to begin his worldwide ministry in Galilee. <laughs> his worldwide ministry to the nations for eternity is going to start in Galilee. Now, I talked a bit about Galilee in the last Matthew series. It was looked down upon, scorned, unimpressive place. The way up is down. And often G Satan tempts us with really good goals that can have godly, good-hearted motivations. Goals and purposes and plans that are similar to God's, like loving God's world. But ultimately, they subvert, undermine, and usurp God as the one that we serve only. It subverts and undermines it. 
So I wonder when God has tempted you with something good that maybe even fits in with the promises that he's spoken over you that are good, but ultimately you do it in your own way, at your own time. And so those plans become subject to you as the Lord of them and the God of them. And those plans and promises of God become subject not only to to worshipping God only, but to worshipping you only. Because you're the one ultimately who gets to decide when and how they happen. Even if they are good aims and goals in the first place. So we can subtly end up justifying what looks like good godly decisions. We can say things of those things that were tempted. I just love X. I really feel God is in this. This is something God has spoken over us. This is going to cost us. You can have really godly reasons sometimes for accomplishing a goal which is a good goal, but the way that you go about it makes it a goal that you achieve in your own strength and your own way and not in God's way. And so it subverts the Father is the boss, the Lord of your life, and you're worshipping him only. Because loving God defines what loving others and what our lives look like. Loving God defines those things. Uh, the second thing is Jesus' method. The previous uh, temptations have been, the enemy's been ta- tempting Jesus' weakness, his need for bread, he's hungry at the end of 40 days of fasting. It's tempted Jesus' strength, his faith in the word of God. Now um, he, come, he tempts Jesus' purpose for why he came. And the t- uh, scene here that we got is a scene of battle. This is a war scene that we're reading about. Jesus is battling with Satan. There's a war going on. It's spiritual warfare. I wonder what you think of spiritual warfare when you hear that phrase. This passage is demonstrating it for us. Um, Our UK government has supported Ukraine in the war effort by donating £4.6 billion worth of armoury. Why have they done that? Well, partly because they didn't feel they were able to go physically into war and engage with Russia because of the consequences, whatever you might think of that. But because Ukraine, in order to fight effectively against a larger enemy, need armory, don't they? They need things to fight with. They need arms, weapons to do battle with Russia. And they've done much better than anybody expected, haven't they? Partially, probably, because of the kind of armory that they're receiving. To ensure victory, to fight effectively, to win the battle, you need weapons. In fact, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, isn't it? He says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers of this over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says it again, take up the whole armour of God. That's Paul's plea to the Ephesian church at the end of his letter. He's like, if you do anything, put on the full armour of God. Make sure you go into battle, you go into war with weapons. Don't, don't go empty-handed. You don't go into war without the things that you need to, to be able to fight it. And so he says, put on the whole armour of God. And Jesus has a common weapon in resisting the devil, a common tactic in resisting him, a common way of standing firm, as Paul puts it. And his weapon is the Bible. Three times over, he quotes scripture to resist 
the enemy. The enemy tempts him with, turn these stones to bread. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Why don't you leap off into your father's arms? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. I'll give you these kingdoms and all their glory. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6, 13. Jesus' weapon is scripture. That's what he's going to battle with. That's what he's at war with. Um, I looked up on a Telegraph um, article what the UK has donated to Ukraine in the war effort. And they've donated anti-tank missiles, defence missiles, artillery guns, armoured fighting vehicles, anti-structure munitions, multiple launch rocket systems, artillery shells, tanks, self-propelled artillery, cruise missiles, light anti-armour weapons, air defence systems, non-lethal aid. All of this, if you're going to go to war and you're an ally of us, have these we- you need all these weapons to go to war to fight effectively. And as Christians, we need to do the same, don't we? This verse, 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 this verse. Know it in my heart so I can fight the enemy when he comes, so I can resist him, so I can be effective in battle. Which verses and passages of the Bible are you going to battle with? When truth feels untrue, when the circumstances and situations of life tell you that God doesn't really love you, that he's not really interested, that his plans and purposes for you are not going to happen, what are you arming yourself with? Because if you don't have scripture ready to go to war with, you're like a Ukrainian soldier walking into a Russian territory with a butter knife. With a butter knife. That's what you're going to war with. And you're going to lose. If you want to win the war, or the war's won, but if you want to win this particular battle that you're fighting, the resisting of temptation, you need to arm yourself. You need to arm yourself. Get ready for battle. Get ready for war. Spiritual warfare is going on all the time. The enemy is constantly trying to discourage you. He's trying to tear you apart, split you off from him and God's people. He's doing it all the time. And if you're going to fight that battle effectively, you need to arm yourself. I'll give you a personal example of how this works in my life. Some of you will know that the thing that's my greatest weakness is loneliness. Even if I'm not actually lonely, the devil will want me to feel lonely. And when I feel lonely, that's when he'll get me. And he'll tempt me with all sorts of things. But the base is, James, you're lonely. And I'm offering you this. And it will help you deal with your loneliness. I had it horrendously at the end of the pandemic, as you can imagine. Because that was quite a lonely time. And the enemy's having a real go. And I'm in deep depression as a result of the circumstances around the pandemic. And he's really having a go. Because it doesn't feel true that he's present. It doesn't feel true that he loves me. It doesn't feel true that I've got friends in God because I can't see them. They're not around me. It's just me at home most of the day. And so the scripture verses that are important to me that I know by heart, that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's his promise to me. It's in Hebrews, it's in Deuteronomy 31. So Hebrews 13.5, Deuteronomy 31.6. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says in Matthew 28, verse 20, I will always be with you. I will be with you always. Always. 
never a moment when I won't be with you. Those are the verses I go to battle with when he predictably tempts me when I feel my loneliness. You can probably, with a little bit of self-awareness, identify what your greatest weaknesses and strengths are. And know, these are the verses of scripture I need to hold on to to go with to battle. Because the problem is, is that sometimes the enemy wants to make us feel like we need to know the whole of the Bible, don't we? And he'll make you feel like this. You don't really know much of the Bible, do you? You found school quite difficult. Reading's a challenge. This is uh, an ancient text. It's thousands of years old. You need to be pretty intelligent to unpick it. You couldn't possibly learn all of this. Look at it all. You'll never learn all that. It's like, almost like reading a foreign language sometimes. French is easier. <laughs> That's what he gets you with, isn't it? You know, Jesus quotes three verses of scripture. Three. I reckon the chances are most of us in the room know probably more than that. Maybe not word for word, but Jesus actually doesn't quite quote them word for word either. Not because he doesn't know them, but because he's he's doing it on purpose. But the point is, you get the point. They're in Deuteronomy 6 to 8, which means Jesus only needs to know three three chapters of his Bible in order to resist the enemy in this temptation. Satan always wants to make the task look bigger, to overwhelm us with the idea of learning the Bible and arming ourselves. But just start with a verse or two. I've got to be honest, I don't know masses of verses to fight the loneliness thing. I know those two. I could probably think of some more. But I don't need more. I don't need the enemy to tell me, like, you need loads of verses to fight loneliness. No, I don't. I will never leave you. It's really basic. I'm always with you. Great. Those are, things that are the things that are true and that matter that I need to hold on to. So what are the things you need to hold on to? You don't need to know the whole of the Bible. You don't even need to be literate. Somebody could literally memorize the verse with you so that you're ready for battle. Zelensky doesn't wait till he's got all the weapons he needs to go into battle with Russia, does he? He starts fighting straight away. And then as he goes on fighting the war, he goes around other countries. And what's his common theme? Help us. We need, we need arms. We need weapons. So be more like Zelensky. Go to war with what you've got. And as you fight him, keep campaigning for more weapons. Finding verses of scripture that help remind you of the promises of God to go to war. This would be a good thing to do in our house groups, is to think, what are your greatest fears? What are your weaknesses and strengths? What are the things that the devil tempts you most with? To know what they are. If you can't think of the scripture... That's no judgment on you. Just ask the group. Hey, folks, I really struggle with X. What can I remember just to remind me of the promises of God and the truth? And get others to help you in that. Maybe you struggle to memorize things. I had some friends who, who struggled with that. Every time I go around their house and use their toilet, they've got a handful of scriptures on their bathroom mirror. And I said, well, you know, what do you do with those? It's like every time I'm brushing my teeth. I'm just trying to memorise it because I'm, you know, forgetful. You brush your teeth every day, don't you? Twice, don't you? (laughs) Whatever you can do to go get ready to go to battle, do it. Uh, Third thing is the Father's promise. I mentioned last week the devil's promises are always full of promise, aren't they? They're like, 
you know, you've got no, you've got no food, bread, out of these stones. Um, he promises in the second temptation an even greater. The Father loves you, does he? Is that why he said at your baptism? Hey, if you leapt off of this pinnacle now, the Lord would come to your aid and you could leap into his arms. He'd rescue you. You'd have even greater confirmation and assurance that you're his son then. He's always promising that the grass is greener. Hey, the Father's promised you the nations of the world, has he? What, through the cross and through suffering? You could just have it now. That would be greener wouldn't it? You could just have it now. You wouldn't have to go through the grime of human life, through all that rejection and mockery, through all of that abuse. You wouldn't have to go through people questioning you. You wouldn't have to go through physical pain to the point of death, hours of suffering on the cross. You don't have to do that. You could just have it now. That's the devil's promise. The devil tempts Jesus with this true promise of the Father, how do we know that this is a pr- promise the Father has given Jesus? Let me just give us some verses. It says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night's vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And when Jesus comes, what does he call himself? The Son of Man, that's his favourite title for himself. Why is it his favourite title for himself? It's a way of reminding himself of Daniel 7, the Father's promises to him of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Because that's what the Father has promised to Jesus. It says in the Psalms, Psalm 2, You are my son, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of earth your possession. Psalm 72, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. These are the promises of the Father to Jesus, the kingdoms and nations of the world and their glory. And Satan tempts Jesus with what the Father has promised him. He says, this is your inheritance. This is rightfully yours. This belongs to you. It's your right as the son of God. In fact, he tempts him like the prodigal son. This is what the prodigal son gets tempted with, isn't it? I could have my inheritance. In fact, my inheritance is coming, but I want it now. I'm going to have it in my own way. Do it now. I'm going to take it, wish my father was dead, and go off and have my inheritance right now. He tells you, it's rightfully yours. He's no more is the devil going, if you're the son of God. He realizes that that isn't working. And he says, you are the son of God. So this is rightfully yours. So take it and have it right now. Satan offers the right end, a good outcome, the fulfillment of God's promises, but by the wrong means the wrong route, the wrong channel. Satan offers Jesus the nations of the world, but through the easy route. He tempts Jesus with something Jesus wants. Love God's world, love the nations, bring them justice, righteousness, peace and joy that they long for. Because Jesus longs for the nations of the world. You might think, that's a, doesn't that like something selfish? It's kind of selfish for Jesus to think he wants the nations of the world you can't want all that power and authority. Sounds a bit greedy and not very godlike and not very selfless. But Jesus wants the nations a bit like I want the love of my wife. He wants the love of the nations like I want the love of my wife. I want me to be hers. I want, I want her to just want me. Yeah? To be faithful to me. To love me. 
as her husband and her only husband and her, her only love in that way. And that's a good thing, isn't it? In the same way, Jesus wants the nations to be fully given to him. Wants to love them. Just as a groom loves his bride, he wants his bride, the church from all nations, to give herself um, to him fully. And he can't wait that for that day. Jesus can't wait for the day when his bride is fully his. So Satan tempts Jesus to fulfill God's plans, purposes for his life, but to do it his way. Take matters into his own hands like the prodigal son. Take his inheritance now. Leave home. Leave the father. Wish him dead. But Jesus resists and is obedient to the father's plans for him, regardless of what it costs him. And the difference between the devil's temptations and offers and the father's is that the devils are temporary and they're less. The devil tempts Jesus with all the glory and all the kingdoms of the earth, but the father's promise to him is that everything, he'd have authority over everything in heaven and on earth. The devil can only give him earth. The father's promise is actually heaven and earth. The devil can only give it until Jesus returns, you know, until the end of time. The Father wants to give it to him for eternity. And so the S- Satan tempts us with things, but he tempts us with temporary things. He tempts us with good things. He tempts us with intimacy, with friendship, with peace of mind, comfort, joy, Your heart's desires, respect, affirmation, resources, wealth, satisfaction. If only you do it your way, i.e. his way. Have all of that, but take matters into your own hand. Sort it yourself, DIY it. You've got the means to do it. But Satan's promises are not God's promises. He might be able to fulfill them a little bit, but he can't fulfill them forever And he isn't offering life in abundance in all its fullness forever. He's offering some relief from the test and the pressure that you experience now, temporarily, but it's going to fade. He's saying the grass is greener, but his grass will eventually die out. Jesus is the one who offers the new heavens and new earth where the grass grows green forever. The devil's just tempting you now with what he can offer. Don't be fooled into taking it. The Father's got better promises for us. And the final thing is this. God's timing. The devil predictably comes and tempts Jesus in his vulnerable isolation. And the devil's timing, like I said, is now, immediate. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world and their glory now. His promise is different to the Father in that he promises to fulfill them now. Shortcut the waiting, shortcut the pain, the difficulty, the suffering, the cross. Have it all now. And that's often the devil's promise, isn't it? Because when you're going through testing, you want to get out of it now, don't you? If you're going through a period of testing and of trial, of temptation, you're not like, ah, it's all right, I get through this. The actual temptation is, it's genuine, isn't it? Because you really want to get out of it. When I was experiencing depression at the end of the pandemic, I'm not going, I can resist this, this is all right. And I'm not even always going, the devil's tempting me. Because sometimes I'm oblivious to it. And I'm not like thinking, this could go on forever and I'll stand strong because I know the Lord Jesus will be fine. I'm at battle. I know those verses. No, I'm thinking, 
this has got to end. This is painful. This is horrendous. I do not want to be in this. Get me out. Those are my prayers. Isn't that your prayer when you're in a season of testing and of trial? God, get me out of this. I do not want to be going through this. And you might even say things, if you love me, you'll help me. Get me out of this. I do not want to go through this. It's genuine pain and difficulty and suffering. We want to get out now. And the enemy will tempt us with things like, you're stuck. You know that? You're stuck. You'll be in this forever. He's not going to come to your help. I don't see any way forward. Do you? See any way out of this situation? Looks to me like you could be in this for a really long time. I don't think he's going to come and help you. Here. Have a way out now. And that's what he's always tempting us with. His timing now. But Jesus responds by trusting God the Father's timing, obedient to fulfilling God's plans in his way. And so Jesus is going to put Satan to shame openly on the cross. He's going to rise from the dead in victory. And Jesus, at the end of this gospel, is going to stand on another mountain. And he's going to declare this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Victory. Satan offered me an early, easy way out. And I resisted him. And now, all authority, the promises of the Father, are mine. All authority has now been given to me, as the Father has promised. I did it his way. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Make the nations mine. They're my inheritance. There's going to be a glorious church at the end of Revelation from all nations, every tribe and tongue. And they'll be mine. They'll be fully given to me. They will love me with their heart because I've given everything to them in my death and resurrection. Don't fall for Satan's promise of now. I'll give you one personal example, and then we'll, maybe Julian, if you want to come up and we'll worship in a second. Uh, Some of you might know I spent a gap year in uh, Uganda when I was 18 for a year, and then I went back every couple of years. Because while I was there, I felt like God really placed in me a long-term longing and desire to have an impact in that nation to serve God there, to build the church, bring God's kingdom, be on mission there, making disciples. And uh, from that moment, what I did every year or every term when I came home was I would try to find a way of getting back to Uganda. It was a good goal and a good promise because I felt like God had deposited something in me. But I was always tempted to try and make it happen now. And so I'd come back from my first term at uni and I cried because that was the longing of my heart and God wouldn't let me go (laughs) I came back at the end of my first year and I cried because I wanted to go there I didn't want to finish my degree I wanted the thing that God had promised me and set on my heart and then for the first five years of my time in Norwich I did it every year up on the internet what opportunities are there in Uganda how could I make that happen now and uh, right up until now it's still not happened (laughs) But the thing is still there. The temptation is always there. Make it happen now. Do it your own way. 
And waiting on God, trusting his promises and his perfect timing costs us, doesn't it? It's painful, it's difficult, it involves suffering, taking up your cross and following Jesus. But the Father will fulfill at the right time. There will be a moment when, in Christ, you will be stood on a mountain, as it were, declaring the goodness of God and the fulfillment of God's promises to you. Ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus' reign of justice, righteousness, peace and joy is whole and complete for all of us. Isn't that good news? Um, Should we stand? We'll get ready to sing. In verse 11... It says, the angels came and were ministering to him. It means they served him, supported, provided domestic help. Most commentaries think that they came and gave Jesus food. They helped him regain his strength. Because when we seek first the kingdom of God, all of heaven, all of earth's necessities and all of heaven's gifts are provided to us. If we're in Adam, angels mean flaming sword, keep out. But if we're in Christ, in Jesus, if we're following him, the angels mean comfort, support, strengthening, and help. The promises of God in Psalm 91, which are earlier in the second temptation, are now fulfilled. And Jesus does get angelic help. He gets food to strengthen him. James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. If you resist the devil... He will flee from you. Yeah? Should we just still ourselves before God? The Father wants those of you who are going through real periods of testing and trial. You feel really under pressure. You just want out. He wants you to know. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's my promise to you. There will be an end to this. There will be a day when you stand on the mountain, as it were, and declare the victory of God, having come through it. Thank you, Father God, for these promises that we can hold on to. We pray, come minister to us. We even send angels to us, Lord, and serve us, strengthen us to fight the good fight of faith, to go to battle knowing that our victory is in Jesus. We need you, Lord. In our time of trouble, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Lord, we come confidently to you, knowing you've got a throne of grace, that you're our Father. You called us your Son. You say you're well pleased with us. You delight in us. And that you will provide all the help we need to endure the season we go through. Amen.